Margot Livesey is the acclaimed author of the novels Homework, Criminals, The Missing World, Eva Moves, The Furniture, and Banishing Verona. Her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, and she is the recipient of grants from both the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation. Born in Scotland, she currently lives in the Boston area and is a writer in residence at Emerson College. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. I'm very pleased to be here. I read Hamlet recently. For the first time? For the fifth or sixth time, and discussed it on the website. And whilst reading through various discussions of the work that you've produced, I couldn't help but see some parallels, particularly with the ghost and trust. Mm. Could I say something about Shakespeare first? Please do. I was going to say that I think Shakespeare is probably the only author about whom I can truthfully say that I have a lifelong relationship. We put on a scene from The Merchant of Venice and a couple of scenes from A Midsummer Night's Dream. Really from you know, quite an early age I had these magnificent lines and these startling plots in my brain and I've never stopped being delighted by his, by his work. I mean, I can't think of a greater pleasure than to sit down in the theatre and see a really good production of Shakespeare. I couldn't agree with you more. I can't think of anything more, well, fulfilling in a whole range of different ways than to sit down and watch a really good production. I saw Measure for Measure, I think it's about two years ago in London, and I, they set it in some kind of fascist uh, South American country, and it was, it was just riveting. I've noticed that in some of your novels, you, just as Shakespeare does, he'll give you the whole enchilada in the first act, sometimes even in the first few phrases. And you've done that in at least one of your novels. I did something like that in Eva Moves the Furniture. And um, in Banishing Verona, the novel I wrote before The House on Fortune Street, I very much had a Midsummer Night's Dream in mind. you know, and the way in which Shakespeare, that, in that play, you see things happening in sort of first a major key and then a minor key, or something happens between Titania and Oberon, and then it happens between Hermia and Lysander. And I, I love that idea of the couples rotating around each other and moving through the dark forest. Why do you think that, that Shakespeare did that? And why do you think that he set it all up to start with at the very beginning, and then sort of unraveled it over the following four acts. Well, I think that that idea of drama is a very classical idea of drama. Certainly in Greek theatre, you know, the Greeks regarded it as... Um, it wouldn't be a good thing to go to the Greek theatre if you didn't know the play. You know, they regarded that as an inappropriate state to be in. <laughs> um, and I think Shakespeare, you know, was very consciously often telling stories that he knew his audience would already know, either from history or Holland Shed, whatever he's called. So I think that rather than conceal that fact, he foregrounded it and went for a different kind of suspense, a kind of suspense that occurs when you're not waiting to see so much what will happen, but how it happens and why it happens. And I think I'm very interested in that kind of suspense too. Well, the the whole conceit of Hamlet is, is is he going to fulfill his ghost father's request to uh, avenge him? Yes. 
one of the keys is trust. Is does he trust the ghost? Absolutely, and in I think in Eva moves the furniture. I um, I thought of the supernatural companions who accompany Eva as being um, not completely reliable any more than humans are. One of the discoveries of her journey through the novel is that revelation that they keep secrets from her. They sometimes mislead her. They have their own agenda. It, it's not like they're guardian angels. Yeah, they're speaking of the Greeks too. I mean, the Greek gods were so childish. Yeah, it's, it was astonishing. It's almost like they're sort of having pillow fights over somebody stole my breakfast or something. That's right. Yeah, or you, you touched my girlfriend. You watch it. I'm going to go after yours. Or yeah. that kind of scenario then of trust. It plays itself out with parents, of course. And I'm focusing on Hamlet, as I mentioned at the beginning, because it's so fresh in my mind. But I think it, I hope you agree that it, it's a, an interesting play to, to riff off when discussing your books. I think it's a, a wonderful play, partly because I think it's absolutely of its time, and yet it remains absolutely contemporary. And I suspect mm. people have felt that for several hundred years, you know, mm. that this was a play written just for them in, in certain ways. And I think that the questions of trust and betrayal of of the corruption of power, of how much you can push other people around. <laughs> yes, the authority of the parents and yes. uh, the fact that Polonius basically ruins Ophelia's life by telling her what to do, and she she obeys him. Yeah, I think it feels like a very complicated play because you can just go into it over and over again from a slightly different angle. In the house on Fortune Street, I mean, I think one of the things that I drew on from Shakespeare was that idea of entering stories from different angles, you know, that every exit is always is also an entrance. Well, you look at uh, different characters, basically there are different points of view and different takes on the same situation, correct? Yes, and but, but I'm ha- stammering a little bit because I think that makes it sound slightly like Rashomon, which is not quite what I'm after in the house on Fortune Street. It's more like I'm after the idea of... You know, maybe three years ago you went to dinner with some friends at Thanksgiving and some incident occurred about the cranberry sauce. And two years later, at another Thanksgiving, you found out another little piece of the story about the cranberry sauce. Um, So, From another... From a different person, perhaps at a a different (coughs) dinner altogether. And um, I think stories often come to us in life like that. It's not just we get them from a different point of view, but we're getting the sort of different pieces that we put together. And we never get the the complete picture. Right. And I think that has been was one of the big projects of of the 20th century, both in visual art with Picasso and Braque and Cubism, Mm. and and in fiction, you know, the idea that the omniscient wasn't necessarily the most truthful or the most satisfying representation of the world. A more faulty, fractured vision. Kind of a shard that uh, gives you more definition, maybe. Yeah, and doesn't T.S. Eliot have some famous quotation about these shards I will shore against my ruin or, or something like that? That idea is something that was at play in your most recent novel where you would you would give sharper attention to different detail? 
Yes, where I would, in a sense, isolate each character in their own point of view, as opposed to, as I'd done in Eva Moves the Furniture, where I allowed Eva to tell the story in the first person, or Vanishing Verona, where I went back and forth between two characters. That sounds a bit like the Alexandria Quartet. Yeah, well, a very influential book for me. I read it under the bedclothes when I was about 15, probably suffering terrible oxygen deprivation. <laughs> and, and I just remember loving it. So I've never gone back to it with, with, in fresh air. Until now. Until now. Yeah, in my so it was, it was, again, that was in your mind then. Yes. I'm speaking with Margot Livesey, the author of The House on Fortune Street. I'd like to look at metaphor. And I've been trying to figure out uh, there are different kinds of metaphor. There's an authorial metaphor that the narrator would come in with, and then there's character-related metaphor. Have you ever heard of that distinction? I have not, but it makes perfect sense as you're saying it. No, I can can completely see that, yes. How can you completely see it? Because I can't. I suppose I think of the distinction between those those novels like um, Middlemarch, for instance, where you have such a clear sense of an of a author hovering over everything. And then uh, other novels where, you, or Jane Austen is, is comparable, but or other authors where you're much more um, in the character, as in, say, Jane Eyre, you, you know, where everything is coming from from Jane's brain. Right, okay. So I do think that there is some distinction between the third and the first person, where the first first person has to be more faithful to character in the choice of metaphors. So I think that's right, because, of course, the perspective and, and the voice is their voice. I guess what I'm trying to get at, though, is if you stay within character with the, with the metaphors, Flaubert has been criticized perhaps for more of an authorial, omniscient metaphor that just plops down and he, he uses the world as his toy. Right. So that it perhaps takes away from your connection with the character and therefore your experience with the, with the book. I suppose I, I have, I've heard this view of Flaubert before, but the last time I read Madame Bovary, you know, there were places where he'd made choices that I don't think someone would make nowadays, but I just thought the novel was so sublime in what it accomplished. That's that exactly <laughs> how I feel. I think that I just I love his metaphors. That's yeah. why I read him. Yes. And I don't think that, that that necessarily interferes with my connection. Even I was never really that connected with Emma anyway. Yeah. But... It didn't necessarily interfere with my uh, connection and involvement in the novel. But maybe it didn't. Tolstoy, though, I think War and Peace is a better novel than Madame Bovary. Well, I think that's probably true, yes. And uh, it, perhaps it's a better novel for, for several kinds of reasons. One may be Tolstoy's relationship with the different characters and what he can accomplish through those relationships. The relationship of him as the author to the, his characters? Well, I think Tolstoy's ability to fully inhabit a larger range of characters was Madame Bovary, there's the allegiance to Emma, and then periodically Flaubert decides to let Charles Bovary have his due. And he's always a little, I think, hesitant about these times when he goes to Charles and then he comes back again. And Yeah, he's a bit of a cold fish anyway, isn't he? Yeah. We were talking about apparitions. Yes. 
And you made a, a remark at one point about uh, Henry James's turn of the screw. This is Eva moves the, the furniture, and there are ghosts that appear in that. You then say that all people are real in the book, even the ghosts. In turn of the screw or in my book? In your book. Yes. I mean, I wrote Eva moves the furniture because my mother died when I was two and a half, and I just had this very small number of stories about her, and several of those stories were about her relationship with the supernatural. So I didn't come to the material purely inventing it, as it were. I took it as a given of my novel that there were going to be these supernatural, so-called supernatural occurrences that were visible to some people and, and not to others. And I'm married to a scientist. He's a scientist and an artist. And when he finished reading Eva Moves the Furniture, he was very doubtful about this idea of ghosts in my fiction and not really approving. But when he got to the end of it, he said this thing that delighted me. He said, you know, I finally get the point. It, It doesn't really matter whether the companions are real or not. That's not the question. And that was really what I hope the reader would finally come to. Is the relationship that they had with that entity that was the important thing? The feelings that it brought out? Exactly, and perhaps more precisely, the relationship we have with the dead, that we do have a relationship with the dead. It's not the relationship we would want. It often feels like a one-sided relationship, but it's not not a relationship. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, and that that takes us back to, to Hamlet and the question of... Why did Shakespeare, why was he so insistent that various other characters, minor characters in the play, actually saw the ghost? Why wasn't it just a a figment of Hamlet's imagination? It's it's very important for him that all these people, and we, the audience, see that, wait a minute, this isn't actually a ghost, it's more than a ghost. And I think... I think there is a long and very honourable tradition of ghosts walking and ghosts being visible to, you know, more than one person for various kinds of reasons. It's to give it a bit more legitimacy to me, it seems, you know. If it was just a figment of Hamlet's imagination, then we could see, well, maybe he is crazy. Yes. I don't think that we are meant to think that Hamlet is crazy. I think when Shakespeare wanted a character to be crazy, he made him like more like the fool in King Lear, say. Yeah. Tom, yeah. Bell, Bedlam, or... Yes, yeah. he, didn't, he didn't just have him see visions on the castle ramparts like, like yeah. Hamlet does. So no, I think it's a very important part of the play that, that Hamlet's father appears to him and gives him this message. It justifies an enormous amount of what happens. And, of course, the fact that his father is dead is very complicated for Hamlet because can you trust this, as you said, can you trust this message? Well, and, you know, I think that's what shatters him, too, is you can't look at it, look what his mother did. And he's not sure if maybe she was unfaithful uh, during his lifetime, his father's lifetime. No, absolutely. And then that sort of, that wonderfully theatrical idea of having the players act out this little play in which the other players, Hamlet's mother and his uncle, will reveal themselves as audience members. It's a wonderful conceit. Have you ever tried that? In fiction, I have not yet tried that. But I suppose in fiction, perhaps the equivalent is a story within a story, and... um, 
I did try that in my novel Criminals. I did have a novel within the novel. And did that reveal anything? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I feel very, very much that fiction, every word has to be earned. So the novel within the novel for me was a very purposeful part of, of the whole enterprise. And I hoped also entertaining for the reader. Yes, I've read that you quote Elizabeth Bowen saying the biggest sin is irrelevance. Yeah, no, I'm completely with her on that. And I think as someone who wrote short stories for a long time and then moved to novels, it took me a while to grasp that because at first I felt I had so much more space in a novel. One of the things you ask your students who write is for them to ask, why should someone read my work? So I'll ask you that question. I think people should read my work, and this sounds uh, incredibly pompous, even as I say it. I think people should read my work because uh, in, in reading my work, they get to inhabit other lives than their own and to inhabit other moral questions than the ones that immediately press, press upon them. And I hope they also get to be... In the, be- in the best sense, as I said, to be entertained. Uh, I have two very hard-working sisters in Scotland, and when I'm writing, I'm always picturing myself trying to keep them awake at night just a little bit longer. <laughs> so you have your ideal reader in mind, then? I do. I have uh, three or four ideal readers. Probably the one who's most immediately present is my dear friend Andrea Barrett, who's a wonderful writer, the author of... Uh, ship fever and most recently the air we breathe and uh, she reads everything I write and um, comments on it and she's my muse and my mentor I love this other line here it's uh, persisting in the face of mediocrity you said that yeah yes well recently I've been teaching undergraduates at a place called Bowdoin College in Maine and my students produce these wonderful stories and when I ask them about them they say oh yeah I wrote it last night or yes I just wrote that on Saturday and they can accomplish so much in a day or an evening much more than I could ever do but they don't really want to revise they don't understand that they could make what they've accomplished even better I produce terribly, I mean, in an evening, I I just produce three or four terrible pages at at best, and that's a good evening for me. But I'm very stubborn about revision, and I've come to feel not pleased about, but at least to tolerate the mediocrity of my first drafts, and to believe that I can make them better. Someone put it much more crudely than that. Whatever you write, the first stuff you write is shit. But not to worry about that, just to keep putting it out. So there's one approach, and that is just to keep putting it out. As long as you understand that it is mediocre, mm-hmm. you're suggesting that your students are not thinking that it's mediocre, or I'm that they just are too lazy to continue to, to work at it, or what? Oh, no, I'm suggesting that, actually, that they're... One of the things I'm learning from them is to think that I can accomplish more than I expect, perhaps, in my first efforts, because they can. And the thing I'm trying to teach them in exchange is that having written these pretty good pages in some cases, they can then take a second look and think again and make them better. I think I can relate to them, too, though. Sometimes Mm -hmm. when you produce something, 
you really are attached to it and you like it. Absolutely. And you don't want to change yeah. it. Forget yeah. it. You know, yeah. if they don't like it, then forget it. Yeah. It's, yes. And you can can say that it's just the thing itself. And I'd also say that there are writers who write very slowly and produce really wonderful first drafts. I don't think writing poorly is the only way to write. Yeah. It would be. I'm just speaking for myself in in this particular case. And it and it obviously yeah, varies from person to person. Margot Livesey, author of The House on Fortune Street. You, you come up with so many lovely, pithy quotes that I'm throwing at you here that uh, I admire. This may have come from your, come from your father-in-law. The, the title of the novel is The First Ambassador, and then a good title is the title of a good book. That actually came from um, the father of a friend who was a judge, and he claimed that there were three great books about romantic love, The Great Gatsby, Le Grand Moan, and Great Expectations. And um, we were talking about books with, with great in the title and, and other such matters, and he then went on to say, I was try- fussing about the title of a book at the time, he said, a good title is the title of a good book. And I found that very consoling. I mean, we don't love we don't love Middlemarch or Saturday for their titles. We love them for what they accomplish. Of course, yeah. So, well, what my friend's father was claiming is that it's not up to the title to make the novel a good book. It's up to the novel to be a good novel, and then the title will be fine. In other words, any great novel is going to have a good title because it's a great novel. Exactly. But at the same time, there are definitely books where you can see the title working tremendously hard on their behalf. For instance, I would say that reading Lolita in Tehran is a very catchy title. Yes. happens to also be a really good book, but that title is one that reaches out and grabs the reader's attention in a very felicitous way. Yes, there's some interesting conflict in it and... uh, it's complexity that catches your attention, just yes. like the, the dust jacket might. Yes. One of the things that you do in your work is refer to great works. Specifically in the house on Fortune Street, Keats's uh, medical training and the relationship with his poetry. Like many young writers in my early uh, work, I flagrantly use literary references and allusions and and a lot of my early work was returned with comments that were not favorable <laughs> about this it's too fact, beautiful huh? well i would be get rejections that would say this is beautiful but but i would also get rejections that would say you know we've already read king lear or <laughs> we, right. we don't need you to tell us about wuthering heights yet again so part of what the pleasure for me in writing The House on Fortune Street was breaking what is sometimes regarded as a taboo. I have to confess it came about somewhat haphazardly. I started the novel writing about Sean, a graduate student, working on his dissertation on Keats. And Keats began kind of creeping into Sean's section of the novel. And, and I loved it, and I loved what I thought it was doing for both Sean's characterization and the theme of his section and how Keats connected with romantic love and immortality and deaths of various kinds. And so when I start, sat down to write the second section, I thought maybe I'll just uh, be flagrant about this at last. Screw the critics. Exactly, and give each, ca- each of my four main characters a literary godparent, a literary companion. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, Sean has has Keats, um, another character has Charles Dodgson, uh, and so on. And the rules seem to be that they were well-known British and 19th century, because I did want to pick authors and works where many readers would perhaps have some familiarity, and if they didn't, it wouldn't be too irritating. Well, and it would also, it would also uh, hopefully motivate them to go back and read them. Uh, absolutely, yeah. yes. No, I'd love to think that my novel led someone back to great expectations. One of the points that uh, comes up with Keats, of course, is suffering, that suffering gives us souls. Yeah. Does that, uh, that theme run throughout much of your work? I think it's a, a perennial question, surely, for, for almost everyone. You know, why is there so much suffering and hardship in life? And I think one of the revelations of finally publishing Eva Moves the Furniture after working on it for 12 years was discovering I had felt that in losing my mother at such age, at such an early age, that I was, you know, quite alone. But, but you wouldn't have, sorry, you wouldn't have really known that. I guess you would have, at age two and a half, you would have felt it? No, I, I suppose perhaps I'm not expressing this quite correctly, Nigel, but I just meant that growing up, I only knew nuclear families. Everybody was two parents and children. Oh, and except for you. Except for me. And my father remarried, but I was always very conscious that my stepmother was not my mother for a number of reasons. But when I published Eva Moves the Furniture, what I discovered really is that everyone over a certain age has lost someone they care about through death or distance or estrangement or there is a painful loss you know and, and it's it is just part of life and Keats experienced losses huge losses at a very early age he had very little time to come to terms with them and he at least managed to achieve intellectually the idea that suffering teaches us something and suffering is what gives us souls my novel doesn't totally embrace that idea. It questions that idea. You know, that does suffering make us wiser or does it make us stupid? Or is it just maybe something else altogether? Yeah, or just does it just hurt us? Yes. And we, we don't know what to do with it. Yes. Except just sit around waiting to get hurt again. Yeah. What about his take on uh, negative uh, capability? Well, I think that that's an incredibly important, again, an incredibly important idea that probably many people circle round. I mean, keep the idea of negative capability that you must be able to remain in doubt or uncertainty about certain things seems to me truly wise. We just can't know everything. Mm -hmm. And it was, of course, one reason that Keats seemed a perfect literary godparent for my novel, because each of the characters at various times realizes that they don't know certain things and that they can't know them. Yes, and accepting that and being being able to live with uncertainty is such a strength, isn't it? It is. And, I mean, one of the things I think is so endearing about Keats is, you know, that he says these wonderfully wise things, but he is he is very young, and, yeah. you know, so he's saying the wise things, but he's not always practicing <laughs> them more. Where's he getting all this wisdom from? I mean, yeah. he did suffer, but, yeah. So he's an endearingly contradictory character, in fact, rather like Hamlet, you know, that that contradictoriness seems very human to us these days. I wonder uh, if you could... This, uh, this question's been asked of you before. Is there anything you've regretted writing? I certainly, 
I certainly regret that my first unpublished novel was so bad and that I spent so much time making it so bad. I, I do regret that. And some of the things, I mean, I nowadays I think... You know, because I have writer friends, because I have a wonderful agent, um, because I have a fabulous editor, you know, my work gets a, a, a lot of assistance and a lot of criticism before it reaches the wider world. So it's, it's almost a consensus within a small group, preferred group of allies, if you will. Well, no, consensus suggests that they always agree, which is by no means the case, but I... Um, privileged at this point to have people whom I really want to listen to. I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm not one of those authors who thinks she doesn't need editing. I'm very grateful for editorial advice and suggestions. And even when I don't agree, I always stop and listen and try to figure out what lies behind the comment or the criticism. Mm -hmm. And is there some way I can make the work better? Because you know, I do want to reach as many readers as I can, and I think writing fiction, we're not writing diaries or letters. We are trying to reach a, a wider circle. Why is that? Why do you want to reach more people? I want to reach more people, I think, because, well, for several sorts of reasons. I think growing up, you know, reading was a hugely important activity to me, and I loved the sense that in reading a book, I was I was part of some kind of community. You're fearful that community is going to shrink. Well, I, I worry that community is a bit under siege. But when I read, you know, say a classic book like Anne of Green Gables, to point to my Canadian, <laughs> the Canadian side of my life, you know, I was aware that that book, many other people had read it, and my friends at school read it, and my father's wife had read it you know so it was a book that there was something pleasing about the book including so many people and that I suppose remains part of my image of reading that there's something very exciting about people having books in common and and you want to uh, include as many people in that circle as you can uh, yes and, and part of your mission then is is to write books that will enlarge in that circle it is and at the same time I'd have to say that I'm not writing, um, I'm obviously not writing like Daniel Steele or... <laughs> Production line. You know, I'm not writing in a way that I think is uh, going to make me a, you know, a Da Vinci Code bestseller. Right, you're staying true to your literary roots. So, you know, I recognise that when I say I want to reach more readers, that's, for me, a very qualified sentence. I don't... I think what I'm trying to say is that I, I try to find the purest embodiment for my characters and for their world and I try to make it as accessible to as many people as I can make it but that I'm not thinking as I come up as I work on my novels oh well people in Philadelphia are never going to like this or <laughs> people in Ottawa won't care for that <laughs> it's only in, in, in revising that I become more conscious of trying to smooth out some of those inaccessible corners just in closing, uh, a couple of points. One, uh, you talk about you know great novel having a perfect marriage of character and plot, and perfect characters in novels are the ones that we, as the readers, probably connect with most profoundly. How do you do that? <laughs> Gosh, is that a fair question? I don't think that's a fair question, Nigel. <laughs> What's wrong with the question? 
Quite well, it's one of those questions that happily, perhaps happily, doesn't have an answer. But it, I think it's, I think it's something to. But isn't that what you try to teach? Um, it is what I try to teach. Yes, and I think it's something to, devoutly to be to be wished for. And I think that, uh, I, I mean, I'm always fascinated by how much readers do at the beginning of a novel or a story. In just the first page or two, readers make so many judgments and assessments about the world they're entering, the characters they're meeting, the situation. And I think that's very like in real life. When we meet people, we make, a kind, we make all kinds of judgments that are based not so much on, on reason as all kinds of intuitive and inchoate skills and patterns that we've some of which we've probably learned at quite an early age. Mm. And well, they do say, don't they, that, that the actual physical presence in terms of first impressions or the verbal element is, is a tiny, tiny portion of what yeah. really goes into making us mm. feel the way we feel. Mm. But it's ironic, though, because that's what you've got to work with in the, on the page. Yeah, no, and it, it, I, think it's, I think it's very baffling, but I think even quite skilled writers still have to work very hard to make those black marks on the page add up to a character who walks off the page into the reader's imagination. And reading about Keats, um, one of the things that was striking was that he, of course, minded terribly that he wasn't taller. I mean, he did want to write great odes, but he would have loved to be six inches taller. And, he was uh, tiny. You know, yes, he was... So was Pope, though. Pope was even smaller. I don't think that consoled Keats for a moment. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's but, not relative. Uh, but interestingly, very few people who knew Keats remarked on his size. You know, it was mm. much... Because his personality was so engaging yeah, isn't that and funny? so attractive. It's like Pierre Trudeau yeah. is such a, such a big figure in, in our Canadians' minds, and yet he was really quite a small man. Is that true? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I never saw him in life. I only yeah. saw him on television yeah. when I lived in Canada. So, I, for, at least for me, I mean, the pursuit of character remain, remains endless and... Um, Perhaps part of you know the deepest study of fiction, how to how to somehow convey people's souls. I mean, I think that lay after. I want to I want to finish with Hamlet. It might be in the fourth act where he sees Fortinbras very forcefully acting mm -hmm. uh, against the Poland. I think it is for no real reason. He's just going out there and slaughtering people, and well, I suppose to take over the other country or wh right. whatever it might be. But he's acting. And then he reflects and says, I mean, I've, uh, he doesn't have any reason to do this, and he's doing it. I've got a, I've got a really good reason to act, and I'm not bloody well acting. Mm -hmm. And then he changes, changes, I think, in the last... He's, he's quite a changed person than he... I guess, guess what I'm trying to get at is, is, is there something in your life that had, had made you act and do things in your career as a writer? Was there a period where you weren't acting, and then you suddenly became filled with a reason and if so what what is the, what would, would that have been I think I have several answers so I'll try to but I'll try to be relatively concise um, I think one very influential milestone in writing for me was when I published my first novel homework and I had two editors one was in Toronto um, Cynthia Good who had also published my first collection of stories and whom I knew quite well at that point 
but I also had an editor in New York and they were editing the novel simultaneously and it was quite striking how often uh, they would disagree about things you know Cynthia would say oh the beginning of chapter 7 I think you know it's I really do think it's a bit muddled and it's much too fast and you really need to slow it down Margot and then Dawn in New York would say um you know, I think the opening of Chapter 7, it's, it's really slow. I mean, I felt, it, I felt just bogged down at the beginning of Chapter 7. Diametrically opposed, then. Yeah, and I think what I gradually learned to take from that was that it was a problem with the beginning of Chapter 7, and it was up to me to fix it. And I think prior to that, perhaps like many young writers, I'd put great stock in publication. I had so much rejection for my early work that when things started to be accepted, I thought, oh, now I'm writing better. Now I'm writing well. And if something was accepted for publication, I just assumed that was a seal of approval, that it was as good as it could be. And so I think a very important part of my learning experience was actually thinking, no, wait a minute, lots of things are published that actually I wouldn't necessarily want myself to have written. And having something accepted for publication it, it's it's still very much my work and it's up to me to try to make it as good as possible however good an editor I have and that was a big leap for me I think to to realize that um, it's funny isn't it yes if you if it's, it's you're striving so hard to get published yeah. and then when it does happen then you f- it's a big relief yes. as if you've as arrived if, yeah and I don't have to do anything more now because yeah. they've, they've accepted it yeah yeah. As opposed to, I'm going to work on this until I think it's absolutely the way I and I don't really care about it. Well, I would, I, it's not that I don't care. I mean, I'm devout, devoutly happy that, you know, my work is, is being published. Mm. But I, when something is accepted for publication, I don't think, oh, right, phew, now I can stop working on it. I but it's not an external source of authority, basically. Yes, that's a much better way of putting it. And that was a big step for me in writing. And I think another big step for me in writing, and again this comes out of my, you know, probably my first ten years trying to write, was, you know, people were always complaining about my early work, that it was overwritten. And they were absolutely right, but there was something about the ambition of that overwriting that was actually a good thing. And I think as I've got older, I've come back to feeling increasingly ambitious for what what a sentence can do and how a sentence can be more pleasurable, more intelligent, um, more musical, more, more everything. So I have become, I think, more ambitious for really my work at several levels, for my characters, for my plots, and, and, and for those, um, you know, our, our ethical units, the sentences, and how those sentences can work even better. Well. What a great answer. Was it? I'm sorry. No, I felt like I was going on too Not long. Not at all. But no, and, uh, and thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to talk with us today. Well, thank you so much, Nigel. You asked the most brilliant, thoughtful questions. It's really a pleasure to do an interview where someone actually wants to talk about writing and literature in general. And well, it's... it's just thinking about those things. Well, thanks very much. I've been speaking with uh, Margot, not Livesey, Livesey. <laughs> She's an acclaimed author of, uh, is this your sixth book? Uh, sixth I'm novel? not sure if it's my, I think it's my sixth novel okay. and my seventh book. 
And you've also written a book, uh, just for our listeners, on writing and, and reading, correct? Or not, it, was not, it an anthology? Or? Not quite correct. No? I co-authored a textbook in the 80s, which was an anthology designed for freshmen, really, and also had a, quite a significant amount of material about writing. And I am presently working on a book of essays about writing. Oh, wonderful. I was going to ask uh, and, and plead <laughs> for which, you to, uh, to, to do some, such yeah, a thing. Yeah, which is progressing quite slowly, but it's very close to my heart because I do spend quite a lot of time in the classroom and you know, my students and I have such wonderful discussions and mm-hmm. I want to honour those discussions. When do you expect and hope that that will come out? Well... If things went surprisingly well, it might be finished a year from now, so then it might be published in 2010, which sounds <laughs> really far away, but actually mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not that far away. Great. Well, we look forward to that. Well, thank you, Nigel.